0: Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Leanna McGuire, your host for this informative podcast on managing foodborne illness brought to you by Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. Our subject matter expert today is Kirk Ornstein. He's RN, MSN, and clinical nurse leader, and a guy who's obviously really good at research. Welcome, Kirk.
0: (laughs) How are you? Thank you. Good, good. It's good to be here.
1: (laughs) Good to have you here. Now, obviously, foodborne illness is Pretty self-explanatory, but we want to know as much about it as we can. So, what's the history of foodborne illness, or how far back might the first case have been?
0: Well, it's an interesting question. Um, Documentation, historical diaries suggest that uh, uh, the first case was with Alexander the Great in uh, 323 BC. Wow. It's believed that he died from uh, um, typhoid fever, uh, which is part of the Salmonella family. Um, You might wonder why we know that. Um, There were royal diaries, and at the time, typhoid fever was rampant uh, in that society. So that's looked at being sort of the the first case that they can uh, document. Um,
1: Wow, that's pretty amazing. That is amazing. And um, what else can you tell us uh, related to history?
0: Well, um, one of the first uh, food laws was the uh, a size of bread, which was um, basically the law of bread that was instituted by um, King John of England in 1202. Uh, basically, they didn't want anything added to the bread like peas or beans. Don't really know why, but that was the <laughs> One of the first laws about that. Um, And that sort of progressed uh, through different uh, environments where, in the United States, uh, in um, um, 1785, Massachusetts uh, passed a law similar to that, basically uh, saying that acts against selling unwholesome provisions was illegal. Um, It's considered the first law uh, in the United States. Um, but it was meant to create an ability to to punish people who basically sold bad produce. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: And unwholesome. I mean, you'd have to determine unwholesome. So I'm sure that was quite the process from there. Uh, what was the next step in that?
0: Well, we we sort of get to the early uh, 20th century um, and. In 1906, they passed the Pure Food Drug Act and the Federal Meal Inspection Act. But what's interesting about that is that that really came about um, because of um, Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle. Uh, I don't know if anyone's read that. I don't know if it's required reading anymore. But basically, it was a, a fictionalized book about the meatpacking industry in Chicago, um, and it describes the very unhygienic dangerous environment that meat processing was undergoing Um, and through that publication it brought awareness about this um, industry and Mm. that spurred the the development of these laws they these laws were already in congress at the time but they couldn't get passed Um, industry didn't want them congress didn't really push it but when this became public, those laws were able to be passed.
1: Wow, that is—I mean, really, uh, 1906 is a long time from 323 BC, uh, the first case that we're aware of. So obviously, um, and sadly, I'm sure a lot of people were lost in the time frame in between with this process. Uh, but that's uh, that's really interesting about the meat packing. So. Um, what other What other changes came about related to that? Would they just passed the law, but what what happened with that law?
0: Yeah, well, you know at that time there was a lot of sort of uh, technological advances going on. Um what maybe seem very benign and simple to us now were brand new technologies. and one of those was canning. Uh, obviously, canning was a way to preserve um, fruits and vegetables um, and transport them around the country to different communities. And that wasn't available at the time. Everyone had their local produce, their own farms. Um, But this came out of the Civil War, where obviously they had to transport food around, and canning was utilized then. So around 1919, um, canning industry was really trying to push this as a viable source for communities to store food, but like most communities, new technology is makes people uncomfortable. Right, and so we see that now. And so the idea of canning wasn't wasn't accepted the way that the canning industry had hoped. Um, and at that time, there was a, a botulism outbreak uh, between 1919 and 1920 that killed uh, 18 people across the country. Wow. And just like media, they picked it up, they ran with it. It became a national sensation. Um, and every, all of a sudden, everyone was anti-canning. Um, and so at the time, they tracked this back to uh, canned olives in California, black olives in California. Um, and as this got back to these canning industries, they realized that that they were a point where uh this could go very badly for them in the industry because the backlash was huge. And so they put together their own research group to look into how to prevent this. Um, And they actually did the research, came up with regulations on how to make canning safer. Um, And they actually joined with uh, the California, California Health Department and allowed them to oversee this process. And so it enabled them to have legitimacy behind what they were trying to do. But it also created a situation where now the industry was partnering with government agencies. And that was sort of the start of what we see today between the CDC, uh, the FDA, uh, USDA, uh, and industry. And so that became sort of the first real regulatory kind of process. Um, and by 1925, this had expanded out to many, many other foods and products.
1: It's really interesting uh, that you bring that up because as soon as you started talking about the canning, I was thinking, oh, there's there had to be people that thought there's no way that we're going to go with this. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that uh, when the government got involved, there was more trust. That doesn't, you know, things have changed a little since then, <laughs> I would yeah. say, just because that trust level was, you know, they're always going to do the right thing for us. So that, that's an interesting transition. So, well, think, um, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, I think one of the things I, I sort of love about this story is because it still resonates today. When you see a dented can in the supermarket, everyone's like, "Botulism, botulism!" <laughs> and it, it, you know, it's one of these ancient stories, but somehow it still resonates today. Yeah, um, you know, and and there's some truth to it. But the reality is that even a dented can is okay. You're looking for very specific signs. If, you know, if it's dented along seams, it's bad. Or if it looks like, you know, it's expanding with something, it's bad. But a right. little dents are okay. <laughs>
1: Good to know. Thank you for that. Um, so they have very strict reg- regulations now for botulism, which of course is not the only foodborne illness. And I know that we're going to get into that uh, in greater detail, but um, Talk to me about outbreak investigation.
0: All right. How is that? So, uh, it, it starts at the, the a local level with um, doctors who will diagnose these conditions. Um, and if they are one of these reportable ones, such as botulism or E. coli or uh, that nature, it is then reported to the CDC. Um, that happens through... Uh, the National Outbreak Reporting uh, System, um, and then it goes to CDC, that information will then be fed into a system called PulseNet, um, which basically is uh, a storage database of DNA fingerprints of pathogens or foodborne pathogens. And so they'll match it or put it into this database and see if they get basically a match, meaning there's another case like this somewhere else. Um, if it doesn't have a match and it's just one case from one local place, the CDC doesn't get involved. Mm -hmm. But if they find that there are cases in different states, then to the CDC, that becomes an outbreak that they investigate. Um, if that's not the case, then the outbreak stays with the local department of health and they will do their investigation. Um, the CDC also gets input from a number of other organizations um, that also submit information, but it's 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 a long list of of different groups that will submit information, but they have to compile it all and put it together. Um, you know, and their job is to investigate, to research, to figure out preventative measures, but they aren't the ones that are actually going to do, say, a food recall or an alert like that. Uh okay. that falls to either um the USDA or the FDA, depending on what product they're talking about.
1: It must be quite the process to nail it all down and figure out where it's come from. In a hurry, I would think it would be necessary to do that, right?
0: Uh yeah, actually it doesn't happen in a hurry. That's sort okay. of the scary part. <laughs> oh. Either from the time that somebody gets sick to the time that it gets to the CDC can be weeks.
1: Oh um, wow.
0: Yeah. And and honestly, these these investigations can go on for years because wow. these cases keep trickling in um, and they become part of this this bigger investigation. Um, and there's some cases we'll talk about, but there's nothing that happens quickly when it comes to these outbreak investigations.
1: So potentially the product that was the issue could be long gone and they've you know got something else on their assembly line that it's not present anymore. Hypothetically. It is
0: very Maybe. common. You no, know, it's very common that by the time they figure out the source, the product's either no longer sold or it's already been consumed, not on the a market, and there's nothing for them to do. Um, and it happens all the time.
1: Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is kind of sad. It is good that we have something in place, regardless. I mean, the only one we know of, during in three in three twenty three BC was and was Alexander right because right. he mattered apparently.
0: Uh, so there was that, a diary.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the other right. <laughs> yeah, what about everybody else? Okay, so um, we talked about uh, we talked about all of that. The laboratory disease surveillance have we confirmed what what is is there something to do with that piece involvement in this process? Well
0: there's there are a couple of things. So there's the Pulse Net, which is really right. a, a national laboratory network. Okay, um, gotcha. And so they're they're partnering with all the laboratories to get the information, store it, categorize it. Um, and so that's coming from all over the country and they're sort of Got a it. clearing house of that information. Um, there's also FoodNet, which is a little more of a surveillance group where they are partnering with um local health departments uh and reporting on that way more of a surveillance aspect more and less of a reporting aspect.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and then there are a number of others like national antimicrobial resistance monitoring system, um, laboratory enteric disease surveillance. Uh so they're all sort of a, trying to get to the same place. Uh, from different perspectives, really.
1: Okay, gotcha. And it all initially comes from a physician's report that someone has been found ill with
0: that. Right. And wow. and that's actually one of those barriers because they don't always report. Um, right. There are different societal environmental pressures that'll keep these inf- this information from not making its way to the CDC. Wow.
1: Okay. So, Kirk, what about uh, statistics? Because, again, I know this isn't the only foodborne illness, um, and, I, and I understand that the reporting is not flawless by any stretch, but what kind of statistics do we have on foodborne illness?
0: Well, the, the CDC right now lists 250 different foodborne diseases um, that affect 48 million people, 128,000 are hospitalized, 3,000. Uh, die. Now, one of the things you have to remember when we look at these numbers is that these are all estimates. Um, right. Partly because we never really know how big the problem is because a lot of it doesn't get reported for different reasons. Um, but regardless, uh, you see that it's a huge number of people that are getting sick from these different things. Um, in our case, right now we only are looking at a, a small subset of these uh, pathogens although they are the most common and uh, extensive ones there are many others that that we won't even discuss
1: right okay well we will get into some specifically um, so CDC has actually identified some specific risk factors for foodborne illness is that correct
0: right right um, and these are these are really generic, um, risk factors that affect whether it's foodborne illness or to sort of general health. But, you know, you're talking about uh, immunocompromised individuals. You're talking about pregnancy. You're talking about mm. um, elderly uh, and, and children. Um, and so each one has some issue related to their uh, immunity that creates a vulnerability. Okay. Um, obviously with children, it's their undeveloped immune system uh pregnancy they have changes in their immune system due to the pregnancy seniors have immune systems that aren't working as well as they might be in addition to comorbidities um and medications that they're taking for these and then obviously the immunocompromised are just yeah yeah
1: just at risk for everything
0: Forever. so <laughs> people for everything.
1: people yeah. People like you and I it may affect us but not as not as severely.
0: Right. And and you'll see as we go through this that we talk about these deaths and they really are occurring in these risk groups. Um so when we talk about you know the pathogen that is the most virulent or the most fatal um you know they will be in those in those groups. Um you know someone who's very healthy generally will survive these uh, foodborne illnesses without much effect other than lots of vomiting and diarrhea.
1: Right, right. Uh, and I know vomiting comes to mind first thing for most of us when we think about this. Um, but there are some other side effects as well, other than that. You mentioned diarrhea, of course, so those are the most too common that we think about. But there are others, correct?
0: Yes, yeah. You, so you start with these basic um, symptoms of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, as the generic sort of general symptoms that you're going to see across all of um, the different pathogens. And not all of them, but but it's a very good sort of tool to look at, and that's what you're dealing with. Um, But you will get into different things where you're looking at uh, bloody diarrhea, you're looking at high temperatures, you're looking at severe dehydration, which is going to translate into cardiac issues and and fluid balance issues. Um, And so when you see, start to see those things, that's when uh, a, a basic sort of stomach flu gets elevated to, maybe we should go to the hospital right now. Um, right. And so when you're looking at these things, that's what you start to look for to distinguish between, not so much between which pathogen made me sick, but rather what needs medical attention and what doesn't.
1: Right. And uh, I'm also, I, I'm making a lot of assumptions today, aren't I, Kirk? But I was going to say, I would also assume that if you're the mother of a young child or if you're someone who's elderly or you have an elderly parent, that just the the let's wait and see um, approach to feeling sick to your stomach or having diarrhea probably isn't the best approach. Would that be correct?
0: Right. It's true. When you're a vulnerable population, you need to take action earlier because in those cases, the progression can be much quicker. Um, right. And so waiting on something like that puts you in a bad spot where you, the damage and recovery is very different. Right. Um, you know, so so with those populations, you want to take action earlier. Um, if you're a strong, healthy person, you can sort of wait and see what happens. Sure. Um, but, but for the most part, you know, it's it's for all of these, it's this fluid loss. Mm-hmm. um and i don't care who you are that if you're losing lots of fluid you can run into some serious um problems um right. and 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 that's really initially the biggest issue that you'll run into
1: right you're losing fluid but you can't keep any down that's never exactly. a good, never a good scenario so we've we've covered the effects or who's most vulnerable but what are some of the variables that affect food safety to begin with. I mean, we've talked about the canning piece, but there's way more involved than just canning, right?
0: Right, right. And, and you'll see that, again, this, these become generalized sort of uh, concerns because they're going to affect all these different pathogens. Although one pathogen might, be, uh, might survive very low temperatures, one very high temperatures, uh, the approach to safety becomes the same. Um, so, obviously, when you're looking at generalized sort of protection. Uh, you're looking at cooking temperatures. You're looking at uh, hi- personal hygiene. A lot of these uh, pathogens are fecal-oral roots uh, as far as transmission, um, clean utensils, um, basically store how you store food outside of, say, the refrigerator or um, oven. Where if you leave something out, out for an hour or two, well, that's going to be a problem if the temperature is not right. Um, you know, so so it's those type of things that are important. Hand hygiene, um, you know, they, they affect all of these different pathogens. Um, and so that's really the most important things are about how you're cooking your food, how you're storing your food, how you're preparing your food. Um, and then basically the, the health and condition of the person doing it.
1: Right. Perfect. Well, that explains all the employees must wash their hands signs that we see everywhere we go. And yep. so they should be. Absolutely. Uh, so that's really interesting about the different, how do we get away with sushi? This is my question. I mean, <laughs> I just start thinking about all this stuff. We don't. Um, ah. uh, it's uh
0: it's, It's somewhat of a risk, no matter what you think about it. It's raw, and there's potentially an issue related to it. On top of it being raw, being stored raw and served raw, um, it is an increased risk. Um, The same reason why they'll tell you if you're pregnant, you can't have sushi. If you're Ah. immunocompromised, you can't have sushi. Um, So it's the same issue that there is an elevated risk. But for most people you get something from the sushi, you're going to be okay, but those populations, it's not a risk you want to take.
1: Okay. Let's talk about, and and again, we did talk about some of these already, but um, most of them, actually the generalization of main symptoms and, and pathophysiology. So we've covered vomiting. We've talked about diarrhea, obviously the fluid loss temperature. Is there anything else that we need to be aware of in this category?
0: Well, I think, um, one of the things we need to just recognize that it doesn't take a lot, uh, as far as fluid, fluid loss to have problems. So if you lose 10% of your body fluid, you're looking at, um, changes in your ability to make decisions. Sort of the mental capacity starts to decrease. If you lose between 15 and 25% of your body fluid, you're, you're looking at death. Um, so these things can happen very quickly. Uh, and so, you know, when I say be aware of, of this fluid loss, it doesn't take much to start this process sort of, of, of falling apart physically.
1: So there are a few things that I'm curious about in uh, when it comes to food testing and, you know, Market pressures and our current state of uh, the economy in the world. So, what about uh, globalization and just international travel? How does that contribute to our issues with foodborne illness, or does it?
0: Right there, yes, it does. There, there are really two parts to it. The first one is sort of the, the the traveler. So, the traveler clearly can go somewhere and bring back whatever's there,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that becomes something that we're dealing with here generally like we've seen most of these things don't have a uh, person-to-person transmission um but they can still bring that back in uh the, the other real issue is the the globalization so um we've gone from the society where uh we eat local fruits and vegetables to society that wants to have access to everything all year um mm, and so right. now we're getting. Uh, crops that we normally grow here, we're getting them imported from other countries because we want to have our strawberries in the middle of winter. Um, and so now we have this issue of, of um, potential pathogens coming in from other countries that uh, may be endemic there but don't really exist here. Um, and so you know, so that's creating those problems. We are now more interested in like, exotic foods. So now we're reaching out to those countries that have these foods that um, people want to try, that they're enamored with, people are foodies. Um, So again, they're creating that problem. Um, On top of it, you have the issue of storage and transportation of these products. Um, I read one study where it it estimated that. Less developed countries um, only. Less developed countries do not generally have refrigerated trucks. Um, They the estimate was that ten to twenty percent of the trucks have refrigeration. The ones that don't, that they're being refrigerated or cooled with ice. The ice is coming from um, water, local water that potentially is contaminated, Um, and so we have this shipping issue, uh, transportation issue that. Adds on top of um, the problem with uh, importing foods from other nations.
1: Right. Interesting. Um, so, uh, what about? Uh, I mean, that's all. Really, opens our eyes, and uh, some of it, I some of it, I just naturally expected. Some of those things surprised me, but uh, another issue that may or may not contribute, and you can straighten me out on this, is climate change. Does it have anything to do with this? Right. Uh,
0: you know, yeah. The, the, so the, the whole issue of climate change, everyone is, <laughs> the, the politics of it are, are a little difficult. But, yeah. Um, you know, as far as climate change, it can have a tremendous impact on many, many different uh, aspects of food safety. Okay. Um, you know, you start with just increase uh, rain. You're going to have more contamination with with uh, waterborne um, um, pathogens. Uh, you've got the issues with pest control. Um, How's that going to be managed? Uh, oh. You've got the issue with pollinators. We hear everyone talking about that. That has issues. Oh, right. Um, you've got issues with say grazing. And encroaching uh, populations, um, so you can lose places to actually let the animals graze because of you know growth of populations. Um, we talk about water sources. Uh, you got issues with livestock and heat stress, weather stress. Um, you know, all these things are 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 causing. They're all about cost and labor, um, and so. You know, you have all these different pressures that are that are going to affect how food is processed, delivered, um, that for the most part, we don't really know how they're going to affect. You can see these things and you can talk about it and they look obvious. Uh Um, And I would expect these changes to occur and the problems to occur. But at the same time, no one really knows what that's actually going to be. Um, and it creates a problem in trying to anticipate it. Now, I would anticipate what I've just talked about. Like, I think those are the things that are going to happen. Sure. But what really happens, it's hard to know. So trying to anticipate this and prepare for this is real problematic. Um, you have issues with potentially emerging diseases. Uh, there was a study that um, looked at um, ice samples from the uh, the Arctic uh, and they found, uh, 33, uh, viruses in these core samples. 28 of them were unknown. Wow. Um, so, you know, and so you wonder what's going to happen with that. Uh, you sort of have to assume that some of that can affect the food supply and the, the food chain. But at the same time, we don't know. But, but, but we are, but we know that there are things that we've never seen before. Um, and so those things are coming to fruition and see how they're going to affect it. Um, the other issue we have right now is is surveillance. Um, as we are involved in this sort of globalization of the, the food chain and food processing, um, we don't have a real surveillance system in place to, to look at what's happening in, the, in the, these other places is with regard to food safety. Right. Um, you know, so that's, that's a problem. And and we are trying to, or the food industry or the food safety industry here is trying to implement something um, like that. Uh, it's part of the... Um, where is it? Where's my note? Right. So it's part of the PulseNet, which is part of the surveillance and reporting system here in the United States. They are trying to implement the same thing across uh, these sort of uh, developing countries um, okay. so that that surveillance can be uh, on par with what we have here. Um, but right now there's numerous problems with that, whether it's funding or cooperation, um, that is still very much in its uh, infancy and and really it's a more of a, a proof of concept kind of situation. Um, so that's hopefully, you know, something that's going to get developed that creates a, you know, addresses some of these problems.
1: Right. And so I, I hadn't even thought about, uh, you know, I heard you talk about uh, the Arctic ice cores. I just <laughs> this polar ice cap melting thing going on in my head and thought, man what's in there <laughs> it's kind of, yeah it's uh, it really you know gives you a pause for thought
0: for sure yeah, it, it, you start to think of some of these like really apocalyptic movies you see and you sort of wonder like how close to that are we really yeah. and you start to think yeah. about you like maybe yeah um, but you know it, whether it happens or not it has to be part of the thinking um, going forward to address these these potential issues
1: yeah, um, agriculture too, right? Just the system, uh, agriculture is changing dramatically, just uh, farmland being taken over and just, I just see there's all kinds of new things that can happen. So you talked about uh, the technology or uh, the PulseNet. Um, is there new technology, any other new technology surveillance that um, that we can yeah. look forward to? <laughs> I can say that.
0: So you know there there are a couple of, there are, and a couple there are a bunch of things going on. A lot of them Good. are um, very much in the sort of experimental stage, um, and some are further along. Um, one of the ones that is interesting—it's actually a um, outgrowth of the COVID pandemic—is uh, uh, wastewater surveillance. Oh. Um, so so what they were doing was that they were sampling wastewater. And in the wastewater, they can identify um, certain pathogens. In this case, they were using it to identify COVID. Wow. Um, and interestingly enough, that uh, in one situation, uh, they were able to identify an on a beginning outbreak in a community ten days before it actually showed up clinically. Wow! Um, so That's they knew it was there. They knew it was there, and it was just a matter of time before it just started showing up in the hospitals. Um, And so that process, sort of, again, proof of concept was working. They showed that um, they now have a national wastewater surveillance system. And there's talk about trying to repurpose that for this foodborne illness um, um, surveillance. Uh, And there's research going on. It was at Oklahoma University is just doing that. Um, they are uh, working with wastewater there, identifying a number of different pathogens um, to sort of develop that surveillance process. So um, there's something very useful there and I, I would think that it will become um, it will be, com- be more implemented um, across the country as, as sort of there's more uptake on it.
1: Excellent. Wow, that's good to know. I'm, I, I feel, I feel somewhat reassured at this point. <laughs> what about food testing?
0: Uh, yeah, so it's, there are different places they're testing food. So meaning that you, t- you can test at the processing plant, you can test, um, you know, when it's outside the process. Uh, and so there are a number of different things going on there. One of the big ones is, um, is CRISPR, which I think people know is that that's uh a genome um, process. So they're trying to use these, um, these gene editing uh, techniques to identify pathogens or a pathogen DNA. Um, and the belief is that these are quicker, um, user-friendly, uh, and applicable to many more um, pathogens than uh, the current testing um, industry has available to them. Wow. Um, yeah, so so like I said, there so there are a bunch of things. So they even have things that are they're calling an electronic nose. So the <laughs> idea behind this, yes. So the di- idea behind this is that this is in the processing plants, um certain pathogens give off uh, volatile organic compounds. And so this Uh, electronic nose would identify these volatile compounds, and at that point, they'd be able to identify that, oh, this pathogen's there. Um, The question is, like, how many of these pathogens actually give off VOCs, right? Right. So they know four right now. So it's E. coli, Listeria, Salmonella, and Staph aureus uh, all give off these uh, VOCs. And so that's one thing that you could use inside of the sort of the processing uh, system. Um, there are things that are called Brilliant. nanoparticles. Um, so these are similar, these are molecules that can be shaped particular to uh, a pathogen. It's a little bit like the immune system with the lock and key or the antigen antibody situation. Um, and so in this case, the research believe that they can actually tailor-make all of these uh, nanoparticles to identify particular pathogens. Um, wow. And so that's sort of, you know, in development. There's also things called biosensing. Um, this is similar, similar to that, except it's actually using biological uh, um, compounds. So this is much closer to sort of the immune system where, you have that antigen-antibody situation, um, so they have targeted molecules. Uh, then there's packaging. So now you can go further with this. You can oh. take all these biosensors and the nanotechnology, put it into the packaging. Um, on top of that, the, the address you can address the issue with plastics. The Plastic packaging potentially could be replaced with, um, you know, these. Um, these different types of polymers, like the organic polymer. So one of them, there were all these different names. Uh, it, there's ridiculously chemical names I had couldn't even begin to understand. But one <laughs> of them came up, starch. They literally can use starch as a, a packaging agent. Um, what they end up doing is creating sort of a, a scaffold and put the starch, this particular starch compound, can't even go into what that is, Um <laughs> But they create basically a, a package for that that can then be embedded with these different particles as well. Um, so you could have these uh, antimicrobial packaging with these particular nanoparticles or biosensors on top of it. Um, this particular one with the starch, as I read it, it couldn't really be used like generic packaging like we see on whatever. but it suggested that you could spray it on like fruits and vegetables. Uh, it's edible. So you could have these packaging things um, with these nanoparticles or these, these biosensors and consume it all without having the issue of waste of plastic and uh, um, environmental. Wow. So there's, wow. there's tons of things out there. Um you know, how far this goes, where it's gonna net out, um, don't know. But uh but it you know, it it's it looks good as far as future goes. So let's hope that all of this sort of pans out in a positive way.
1: Yeah. So I'm curious, is it individual companies that are doing these testing? You said uh Oklahoma in Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma is what you said, correct? Uh right. but but individual like food companies uh, would probably be wise. It would be a good competitive edge, wouldn't it, to be able to come out with something like
0: that? No, <laughs> it, it would be. <laughs>
1: yeah. Right. It, it Speaking it would like be, a I, capitalist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you would think, but I don't know if that's really the case. These are um, Most of this is done sort of at university, laboratory, stuff like that. Okay. Um, one of the big problems with the food industry or the, the producers of the food, these large companies, is that they don't really want anyone inside their facilities. Um, so trying um, to get surveillance on site is very difficult. Um, sure. By law, they have to allow people in to test stuff and things like that, and they have to show that they're doing testing. Um, but to have the type of surveillance that that we really need to have, um, they're highly resistant to that type of, um, you know, intervention involvement.
1: Sure. Okay. Um, it's got that big brother element to it, doesn't it? A little bit. Yeah.
0: And, and the other thing is they don't want to spend the money on it. Um, well, yeah. They don't see the, the value in it. Um, they, you know, want to keep doing what they're doing without any changes.
1: You know, yeah. So. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Now, as far as tracking, uh, and this may be silly, but social media, I know when, through during COVID, which is obviously not a food board thing, but during COVID there was a lot of, you know, I've got it, my wife's got it, my, you know, this kind of thing was going on. Is any opportunity for that to kind of help us throughout or has it? It's,
0: there's definitely the opportunity. Um, it has it has been used. I don't know if you remember the pink slime. Um, yes. Right. So that there was a, um, what was it? ABC News reported on it. And all of a sudden it it blew up on the internet and uh, they were able to get 200,000 people to sign a petition for it. Um, it had significant effects on food purchase, meat purchase. So there's definitely that opportunity. To utilize these different uh, platforms, um, you know they they lend themselves to direct communication with people, to disseminating information very quickly. It can also be targeted um, and to get feedback uh, from individuals, communities, uh, things like that. Um, so there, so it's definitely something that people are going to do. But you know, as we've seen with uh, all social media, like the the issue with misinformation is. I don't know how you would uh, keep keep mm. that from occurring. Um, True, you know. So, so, you know. So, at some point, they got to figure that out in general social media stuff before this could really have a uh, significant effect. But um, you know, there's there's definitely a place for it. It's got real time, potentially real time surveillance, real time data, um, which is uh, one of the problems we have. Have you seen the idea that? We can do an investigation, outbreak investigation, and then find the source. But by the time we find the source, the entire thing's over and there's nothing we can do. um, It's a huge problem. So trying to get real-time data um, is paramount to improving uh, these sort of um, protective systems and, and protecting people.
1: That pink slime uh, scenario, that was pretty interesting stuff. There may be some people who are watching and who aren't aware of it. Uh, anything you want to share or ways that they can um, find out more about that?
0: So, yeah, so th- this occurred in uh, 2012. Um, ABC put out uh, a news article about it. I think Was it March 7, 2012, um, about this particular additive? Um, was, I, I believe it's a stabilizing additive to meat. Um, But it created this slime, literally this pink gunk um, that, you know, when you think about it, it looked totally disgusting and (laughs) nobody wanted it in their meat. They just didn't want it there. Um, So, you know, so it had an uh, industry purpose, but, um, but because it was so disgusting and it got reported on the news, Uh, It blew up on social media, and you know they just, yeah. So, and it had a real effect on these different companies. Where they lost money, there were companies went bankrupt. Um, So, so the the effect social media had was significant. Um, Yeah. So that's yeah. There you go. That's it. Two thousand
1: twelve. Good example. It's a really good example. Uh, so, um, like you said, there is potential to raise awareness on social media. It's just where do we go from there? What about this uh, farm to fork uh, initiative? I know there's every time I go on Netflix and there's umpteen documentaries about that. And, you know, I've watched some of them, absolutely. But uh, thoughts on that? Good, bad? You know, that,
0: no, I think it's great. It, it, it it sort of harkens back to the beginning of what we were talking about with uh, botulism at the turn of the century, where, you know, nobody wanted to adopt canning because they were used to their, they, they knew where their fruits and vegetables came from. They could see it. It, it was, you know, it was natural. It wasn't uh, adulterated. It wasn't modified. Um, and so the, the Farm to Fork initiative is that same idea. Um, bringing the source of the food closer to uh, where people consume it. Um, so, so I personally think that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it it runs it runs in the problem though. It's sort of the the high populated areas, urban centers. Like, how do you do that there? Um, now, I think there's a way to do that because now farming uh, is very. It's very dynamic in how it's changing. Where um, you know, you think about farming before it was like big plot of land, and that's where I had to farm. Um, now this has become very different with hydroponics and vertical farming and things like that. Where all of a sudden, a side of a building can be a farm. Yes, um, you know. So, so these are type of things that could be used, um, you know, in sort of more densely populated areas. I think that. Um, the trick is to get buy-in from, from different community groups to do this uh, because the, the technology is there, the resources are there, um, but it takes a commitment to changing certain behaviors um, and looking at environments in a different way. Um, but, uh, but definitely the sort of a, the farm to fork thing could be applied much broader than it is right now.
1: Okay, inorganic is there a positive to organic? Uh, I mean, that's without the pesticides. So are we more vulnerable with organic or is it just uh, all in the prep? Should we just, you know, concentrate on washing the food and prepping and we, cooking it, it effectively?
0: Right. You know, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, the problem is first of all, like what's organic, um, right. you know, if it, if it's comes from the earth, it's organic. Uh, yeah. but we know we can manipulate things and, uh, you know, and, and call things that are that I wouldn't consider organic organic. Right. Um, but I think, in the true sense, that organic foods are always going to be more beneficial to um, to food safety in the big picture. Um, you know, where we're so say we're always talking about pollinators, and we know that uh, that pesticides and chemicals are having an effect on these particular uh, insects. And so, you know, you lose your pollinators, you lose a lot of other stuff. Mm -hmm. So the organic approach helps to address that issue. Um, I think there are ways to uh, farm where you're actually, you can have different plants that support each other as far as protecting from pests. pests. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's a, a, a different way to think about it. Um, And people don't like to because it's a little more complicated. It takes more thought than just spraying, you know, spraying your crops with a pesticide or, or fungicide or whatever you want to do. Um, But, but again, it, it, it addressed the issues and um, it will uh, mediate some of the problems that are going to occur with, with climate change. Um, So I think that, Although difficult to think about and maybe difficult to implement, um, just like farming's changed and we can have these vertical gardens, um, we can do the same thing with this uh, to create a situation where it's not as complicated as you want, uh, as it it is right now. And so I think we have to go in that direction for food safety. Otherwise, you know, the other what we're what we're doing right now is is not food safe. Um, right, right. You know, that's an ongoing problem and it's just going to get worse.
1: I had a tour of a vertical farm. I got to tell you, that is that is impressive. It's fantastic. I love it. Now, last but not least, big question. What have we learned from the pandemic? What, what have we learned that we can transfer to our foodborne illnesses in order to try and manage those better?
0: Right, right. So um, initially when I started thinking about that, I really wanted to come away with, okay, we've learned a lot, and now we're going to apply this here. and and I thought that, and then I realized what the pandemic has shown me about the food safety industry is we are not prepared. The same mm. way that we weren't prepared for Covid. Um, we don't have the infrastructure to deal with something that did come up. Um, you know, the surveillance isn't there. Uh, the cooperation between governments and industry is not there. Um, you know, The ability to track is not there. It, it's just those same sort of big institutions, whether it's hospitals or food safety or whatever it happens to be, um, isn't making the effort uh, to protect the, the sort of food chain uh, the way it needs to be. And the horrible part is that we saw that with the COVID, that the the food chain is vulnerable at Mm -hmm. multiple spots um and with what's changing as far as food in in a global sense those those vulnerable you know spots are are much more numerous now um and as i sit here and talk about how uh they are trying to set up systems to um to monitor food that's coming in from other countries to create some, uh, some sort of standardized uh, practice. Um, They're nowhere near getting that done. And so, although I'm like, Oh yeah, they're going there. I'm like, they're not there. And will they ever get there? I don't see it. Um, You know, because it goes back to that thing like who's going to cooperate with who um, and who's going to put the money in uh, because the, because they can't see the immediate profit. Um, and even though we know that saving food saves money, which you can look at as saved money as prop more profit, they don't look at it that way. And so um, so so you just you're running into the same problems we saw with with uh, with covid. Um, you know the issue with transparency is not there as much as you know we talk about it, it it's not there. the the food industry doesn't want to be transparent with what they're doing, um, you know. So, so I, I, yeah, so I don't see, I don't see an improvement right now. I'm not sure how we get there.
1: Okay, and uh, that that is the harsh reality. And it's interesting throughout COVID. I know one of the things that surprised me is all these little aspects of transporting food that just completely don't come into your mind was. Uh, was truckers who were transporting food across the country. They had uh, mandatorily shut down all of the rest stops so they couldn't use the restrooms. And, and, you know, you think about these tiny little things, but it affected the transportation of, Mm of food and they were really up in arms about it. It was a really, just one aspect I thought, wow, you know, there's just so many intricate pieces when something like this happens. So, Uh, Uh, To to
0: that point, they, you know, they've never really done that sort of gap analysis. Like,
1: Mm.
0: where is it? Uh, You know, we think about it, but no one really has systematically sit down and looked at all this and how it puts together. And it may be because it's just so complicated. Um, You know, the the article I was reading for sort of how climate change is going to affect farming and things like that. They had these crazy schematics of arrows going every different way affecting everything else and you look at that and you're like that that's the reality and how do you untangle that web
1: yeah that's right and are you know hopefully they're actively working at untangling that web and you know not waiting until the next disaster that's the other piece that uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of us have to think about so anything else you'd like to share with us on managing foodborne illness before we wrap up this episode kirk
0: Well, you know, uh, wash your hands. I mean, it goes back to those things. Right now, it's, you know, we talk about these sort of big global issues. uh, But the reality is right now you got to take care of of things you can take care of um, and being aware of of what's around you and and how to stay safe um, and keep the people around you safe and really sort of working together in that uh, is is where we should be headed Um, and, and that's what I hope we, you know, people get out of this. It's just a, right. a way to, you know, keep themselves and, and their family safe.
1: Yeah. Great. Perfect. I'm going to wash my hands and have a cracker for supper. No, I'm <laughs> No, but it is just, it's about being informed is that, you know, this, none of this is meant to scare people, but to be informed and having knowledge, knowledge is power. And I think it's just important, especially, especially for nurses when we deal with patients in these, uh, with these, uh, symptoms and, and these, um, illnesses, foodborne illnesses. So uh, thank you so much, Kirk. I can't thank you enough. I mean, your knowledge, uh, you're definitely a big time subject matter expert. I enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, some of this I knew and some of it was a big surprise. And I know that's probably the case for a lot of our listeners. So thank you for your expertise.
0: Very welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast series on managing foodborne illness. We encourage you to explore all of the many courses available on EliteLearning.com. As you move forward throughout your career, this is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com
0: podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.